there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest in today's episode is John Muller, an extremely creative senior writer at The Athletic UK. I think you'll enjoy this one. Before we get going, we're starting a World Cup year now, so you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including 14 magazine-style stories. This week, we added one on Katerina Macario in our first four months. That's 14 magazine-style stories. Lots of free posts, too. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the news in the soccer world. We'll have John Muller in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, man? Doing all right. Uh, kind of going through a little bit of soccer doldrums at the moment, but, you know, we're having fun. It is sort of a doldrum week. Very little going on in this part of the world. I guess Liga MX starts later this week, though they're having some COVID cancellations. I saw it with Tigres and Santos uh, later in the week. But, yeah, there's not as much soccer happening right now. And some of what is happening is cup competitions. And I'm not going to go in a rant against cup competitions here, but... I like leagues better. I'm with you. I'm with you. I've had a little bit of a, you know, sometimes I can get fired up for the Carabao. The two-legged semifinal has always been kind of weird to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where you love the idea of big level clubs taking on lower level clubs, but it's only once the upset is either in the midst of happening or has happened that you're really into it. Uh, we haven't seen as many in, in recent years. There have been, you know, Real Madrid went out last year. Barcelona were on the brink of recording this on a Wednesday uh, earlier today. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just not that exciting until you get to the cup finals. And then unfortunately, particularly in England, it's been just a lot of the big teams going against each other. We've at least had, you know, th- there was a derby in Spain a couple of years ago, though that was pushed back, you know, days and days because of the pandemic and then played behind closed doors. So that wasn't fun. So yeah, it just, it feels like it has been a great couple of cup years. We need a magical run from someone to really capture the attention. I think you're driving a hard bargain though, Chris, because like last year, Bayern Munich goes out early in the German cup. I do remember watching that one you mentioned Real Madrid what I kind of watch cup competitions not surprisingly like I do the NCAA basketball tournament opening rounds right where you're not going to watch the entire game in most cases but if you hear that there's an upset brewing you'll tune in and so I did that today you know when Barcelona went down to this third tier team they were playing I was like okay and and they kept at it for a while. Barcelona gets two goals, ends up winning. Real Madrid against Alcoyano, the same team that took him out last year. 1-1 late in this one. Home fans going crazy. I like that the the Copa del Rey has the lower-seeded, upset-minded team host the bigger team. That's kind of a cool thing for me. But then Real Madrid ends up winning, and no big upsets in Spain on Wednesday. So it is what it is. And you like to see the little teams get some upsets along the way. Maybe we'll see some. It's an FA Cup weekend in England as well. So no Premier League this weekend, which, again, is what it is. But I think it also, for me, I was going to talk about this later, but let's talk about it now. Serie A in Italy, for me, is the last title race left in the top five European leagues. And maybe that will change in one of the other four leagues. It's certainly possible. Look what happened with Atletico Madrid's big lead last year in Spain. But right now, Italy's the closest league. 
They have a quintuple header, Chris, on Thursday. Why is there a, a quintuple header of good games in Italy on a Thursday. Fill us in. Yeah, we were we were discussing this before the show. Like, wait a second, that's odd on a Thursday. And they're actually, uh, in some ways, it's kind of like their festive fixture period. It is rather literally a festive fixture because uh, they play a full round of games on L'Epifania, uh, which is uh, the Feast of the Epiphany in Italy. It's 12 days. It is the 12th day of Christmas. It is a full national holiday. And so we have... As you say, a quintuple header, uh, beginning with the league leaders enter away at Bologna at 6.30 a.m. Eastern time. Many of you will probably not have listened to this by the time uh, that that game has probably been you know, played and completed. And so uh, by the end of the weekend, uh, we can have an entirely new picture in Italy. Inter away or, or away at Bologna, and then they're home with Lazio on Sunday afternoon. Uh, they're four points clear of Crosstown rivals AC Milan. They're seven points clear of Napoli and eight of Atalanta. But, uh, you know, when you pack a bunch of fixtures into a tight period of time, you can see real change at the top of the league. So, yeah, I feel like Italy is probably the most exciting uh, league in the world this weekend. I would suggest to people, if you don't watch a lot of Serie A, watch it over the next few days. There's a quintuple header. How often do we get that? You know, and those are actually good games in these windows besides Bologna Inter right after that Lazio Empoli Atalanta Torino Milan Roma and then Juventus Napoli so festival of the epiphany or whatever it's called that's awesome Epifania, yeah five games in a row my goodness you can have the Paramount <laughs> Plus on all day so that's interesting to me and it, it's basically the only games that are interesting that day because the League Cup semifinal, leg one, uh, with Arsenal and Liverpool has been postponed due to COVID on Thursday. So uh, that's happening with a lot of regularity these days, and we'll see if any other games get canceled. Bayern Munich Gladbach on Friday is another one that is in danger, so we'll see. But there's lots of other stuff to talk about here, and for me... I don't even think this is getting enough attention, maybe because it hasn't been announced officially yet, but Lorenzo Insignia is coming now. There's just enough reporting that this is a done deal that I'm I'm on it. Uh, I agree with that this is happening. Um, and The Athletic saying $15 million gross per season, five-year deal. And this blows out of the water the highest salary in MLS league history. And Insigne is a very good player. And I think he's going to have a, an impact on Toronto and on the league. I'm a little surprised that he's the guy who is blowing this MLS salary record out of the water. Yeah, just because he's not exactly the name that even a lot of the guys that have come to MLS, like I don't think if you walk down the street and ask your even, you know, middling sports fan, not even soccer fan, like, do you know who Lorenzo Insigne was? I mean, the answer would probably be no. But the reason why they're paying this much is because you're getting a player in his prime. Like last year scored 19 goals and had seven assists for Napoli. This is a lifelong Napoli player. This is a player who's incredible for the Italian national team at a really high level in Serie A and in the Champions League. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the, the tax that you're paying for someone who is an absolutely sensational player. And so I, I guess the question would be, 
one, does this lift the standard of what clubs are willing to pay? Because it's going to be released by uh, the MLS Players Union that there's going to be a player making $15 million, and that's just such a higher figure. The league, I believe, has to approve these in order to allow teams to spend this much and kind of blow up their own wage scale. So uh, the idea that they're willing to spend this much is crazy. And then number two is, is, does this lead to even more players that are of this level, kind of late prime rather than post-prime, coming to MLS and wanting to make a go of it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. When the Beckham rule first was adopted and the first signing you know, for it under the, the designated player rule was David Beckham, it made me wonder at the time, are we going to see any teams just... Because it is, theoretically, an unlimited salary for three players per team. And yet, we've never seen an MLS team, even once, try to pay somebody $15 million a year or $20 million a year or $25 million a year or who knows? Like, let's say they wanted to get Lionel Messi a couple of years ago for $60 million a year. Frankly, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen that attempt made. Does that strike you as interesting? Yes, it does, because you would figure there would be one owner who would just want to make such a splash, want to sell so many tickets and jerseys, and maybe, you know, even the, you know, league's broadcast partners are like, yeah, get somebody in who's super famous that can help us get ratings and turn every stadium that they go to a spectacle. But I think, you know, MLS does deserve some credit because previous soccer leagues in this country have tried that, tried to garner the attention, and the attention is fading. They're trying to build something solid and sustainable here in this sport. And I think you saw, you know, for instance, Real Salt Lake, a club that maybe in a bygone era does not draw the financial interest of owners like David Blitzer and Ryan Smith. Uh, that purchase was done today. And so, you know, that that's another club that's on steady financial footing. The club is, or, or the league is kind of selling itself on steady financial footing. And I'm not sure you find that by spending $60 million a year on players. And so they've maintained the discipline to be a league that wants to survive. Um, I guess the question is now, is this an opening of the floodgates? You know, are clubs in good enough position? Or, all right, we can take a risk here. We can take a risk to win games, to sell tickets, whatever your motivations are. Yeah, it's just a fascinating deal for me, in part because this is a pure soccer, pure we want to win play. It's not because Lorenzo Insigne has some giant personality. He's not Zlatan. He's he's certainly not Beckham. He, like he's a this is a pure soccer deal, but it sounds like it's done. So congrats to Toronto for getting it over the line. We've seen over the years a lot of MLS teams talk big about wanting to sign big players. They don't always get it over the line. Toronto did. You mentioned David Blitzer. Let's let's try and get him on the podcast. I'm working on it uh, because this guy I think is very interesting. He's also an investor with Augsburg. So the word is, and I still want to, get, hopefully we'll get a story that David Blitzer had an influence on Augsburg paying so much money for Ricardo Pepe this past week. Now David Blitzer is the new owner of Real Salt Lake. And when you're, we'll see how much he ends up paying for that. You would think 300, 400 million. That's the market. And you know, if he does that, is is suddenly Real Salt Lake going to be in a position where they're going to be spending money on players soon? But that leads me into the next discussion topic, which is we've got several new MLS coaches being named this week, three, I guess, but they have kind of a pattern that they fit. And 
those coaches being LAFC Steve Chirundolo, Paolo Nagamura with the Houston Dynamo, and Bradley Carnell with St. Louis City, which starts play next season in MLS. And the trend here, the pattern is that these are guys who know the league. Uh, Chirundolo maybe a little less so, but he's been at least been back in the U.S. for the last year. They're not big name foreign coaches and these clubs all of them could afford a big name foreign coach if they wanted one so what do you take out of that well what i take out of it is is that there's a pipeline of american-based coaches that is now being valued by mls because i would say you know looking to the usl and particularly their you know developmental clubs which is a word that they don't love um, which is why most of those clubs are no longer in, in USL. They're uh, heading off to the new MLS Next Pro League. But, you know, these, cl- these clubs and these coaches are developing methodologies. And, like, it's actually pretty interesting to me that you are hiring the coaches based off of their methodology. Steve Tarundolo with his familiarity and desire to continue the Bob Bradley style in LA and manage that locker room. I think Paolo Nagamura managing in the Sporting Kansas City organization. If the idea is we want to play like Sporting Kansas City do, then you bring in a guy who's very well drilled in their methodology. And the same as well with Bradley Carnell going to St. Louis. They have a German technical director in Lutz Fannensteel. And the idea is you implement a very Red Bully style of play Bradley Carnell coming from the New York Red Bulls. And so it it follows a pattern of this is who we're trying to be. This coach has learned in this country how to coach this style of play. We trust his methodology. You're not necessarily going off record. Bradley Carnell, despite having only been an interim, is probably the only one with a proven head coaching record because he was good as the interim of the New York Red Bulls after they fired Chris Armas. He led them to the playoffs, and it actually Gerard Stuber took over in the playoffs before they lost to the Columbus Crew. And so you look at the pedigree, there's not really a lot of on-field results coaching pedigree, but you're trusting that these coaches know how to coach and have learned a methodology rather than going, well, here's their experience based off of the results that they've garnered in other leagues. But could that bite these teams in the rear? Like, is it something that should be valued more an experience in winning games as a coach, as a head coach? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, in some ways, you look at a lot of the coaches that are succeeding now, and we kind of were joking the other day, and it's still kind of Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley at the top of this league, right? <laughs> like, you know, you, you know you know, that Brian Schmetzer has been in it a long time. He's had a lot of success. He's been at it for a while, but... I think a lot of teams, a lot of clubs are valuing this experience of knowing the American game. Um, I I do want to clarify, though, because I saw a lot of people, the LAFC fans in particular, and look, I think they have every right to want to shoot a little bit higher than a guy who coached one year in USL and was an assistant in Germany on on a pedigree basis just because LAFC aspire to be a big club. But I also want to caution those same fans of both LAFC and Houston Dynamo of looking at their coaches' resumes in USL, their win-loss record, and saying, oh, these are bad coaches. I think that the job that those coaches have to do in USL, taking, for example, Steve Terundolo coached Las Vegas Lights as LAFC's reserve team. They played and trained in Los Angeles, and then they would fly into Las Vegas for the games. It was all about developing players, and some of them actually went through into the LAFC first team. And so that's not the same as managing an independent USL club attempting to achieve results. It's a totally different thing. And so if you look at 
Steve Trundle's one loss record, it's going to look bad because he's managing, you know, a bunch of anywhere between 16 and 22 year olds in a game of fully professional men that are in some ways physically bullying them. So I would caution fans against using the records against them. But yes, this can absolutely go up in flames, but you're also seeing, hey, there's some new blood that's not coming from abroad and valuing the American knowledge base. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. I think we're back in a trend. I think maybe Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley have helped cause this of people with experience being given head coaching jobs for MLS teams, including big MLS teams like LAFC. You know, I just find that really interesting because, you know, Houston, $400 million spent on that team. So they could clearly afford to go out in the market globally and hire some big name coach if they wanted to. Um, St. Louis, you know, they paid a lot for their expansion fee. I forget exactly how much, 300 million, something like that. So it's just interesting to me. And I certainly don't necessarily have an issue with it, uh, with American coaches getting opportunities. One more thing I want to talk about before we head to our interview with John Muller is Carlos Cordero. Remember him? (laughs) Former U.S. soccer president resigned kind of in disgrace in 2020 after the legal strategy came out in the U.S. women's national team uh, case that U.S. soccer was was saying that uh, women were inherently inferior, according to science, uh, (laughs) than men and, and therefore should not be paid as much. And Cordero fell on the sword, took responsibility for it, also said that, well, he never saw it. And... We're going to hear more about that case, uh, that situation, that legal strategy in the weeks ahead, because it appears to be that there's going to be two candidates for U.S. soccer president going against each other, Carlos Cordero, the challenger, and Cindy Cohn, the incumbent. And nobody really thought Carlos Cordero might come back into this, but here he is. I guess my only question right now is, why is he doing this? Because he thinks he can win. I, 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 <laughs> I, really, I really think so. Like... This is a guy who, I mean, we've seen him speak in public. He's not the most charismatic guy in the world. You can't neither, really... neither one of them are, by the way. Right. But, I mean, you look at Carlos Cordero's legacy, you know, what he did in his couple of years in charge. His legacy is that lawsuit and how poorly it went in public. Like, he doesn't have a record really to run on and say, oh, you know, the U.S. soccer program really turned around under my watch. And so I'm kind of dubious of, despite all the public indicators going against them still decide to run because it means that he thinks he can win he he has the votes of these local associations i learned so much about the u.s soccer federation when it really opened up and eric winalda and kyle martino and and some noted american soccer figures ran it's like all right let's get it let's get a look under the hood and see how this works and when carlos cordero won that election it became clear that he was able to win over all the various stakeholders in the game to win that election, he must have canvassed them and think, well, you could probably win again. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he did win again because he has the the the, the backing. It's only the public pressure that comes from people like Megan Rapino today on social media who tweeted or resigned because he embarrassed everything and everyone with caveman levels of misogyny. It's only that kind of public comment that's going to, I think, stop him from winning. Well, I have a few thoughts on this. For one, the big accomplishment that Cordero can point to when he was U.S. soccer president is getting to host the World Cup in 2026. That's fair. So he put a lot of time into that. I don't think anyone feels like you know he didn't deserve some credit for that. 
However, when he was the U.S. soccer president, not a lot got done. And based on what I understand, like the the relationship between Cordero and the, the board of U.S. soccer when he was president was pretty antagonistic. And there was a paralysis where things just didn't get done. And so that was an issue. And how did Cordero win the election in the first place in 2018? The Athlete Council has become a very powerful force inside the election for U.S. soccer president. And the Athlete Council is going to have an even higher percentage of the vote in this election. I think it's like 33.3%. So for me, the question is, can Carlos Cordero somehow win over the Athlete Council and get their support again over Cindy Parlo, a former player, by the way. And I think that's going to be a big challenge for him. Do I think that Carlos Cordero will have support from state associations and the amateurs and the you know that whole group? Yeah, he might. Uh, he might have. And, and that may be why he's running now. And those may be the nominations that he has. But, you know, remember, he's won a couple of elections for vice president and for president. And so he had to build relationships with the voters. And I do think to some extent, if you think about like, who are these voters? Like, that's where he might have a shot because public opinion you know, if you just go on Twitter, is pretty negative about Carlos Cordero, but public opinion doesn't vote in the U.S. soccer election. And a lot of these state associations have a lot of like older people who have pretty conservative views and have views that don't necessarily match public opinion. And they don't necessarily care that much in some cases about the the senior national teams. They want to get what they can for what they're doing. And it's a membership organization. And so that's where I think it's going to be interesting over the next couple of months until this election. If it ends up just being Cordero versus Cohn, I don't know how much appetite Cohn has for the campaign trail and all these things. <laughs> if I were her, I wouldn't have much because it's it's kind of exhausting. I, my experience of covering the campaign when there were, I think, eight candidates back in 2018, it was there was a lot distasteful there. And so... I, I just, as I said earlier here, neither Cordero nor Cohn are particularly dynamic speakers or, or that charismatic. And so I'm, I'm just very curious to see how this goes over the next couple of months. But I think it's important. And, and we'll see where it goes from here. But it's an unexpected wrinkle to something I wasn't planning on covering another U.S. soccer campaign <laughs> Did again. Did you have so much here fun in are. 2018 that you can't, you can't wait <laughs> was, to do it again? I was so glad when that was over. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, Chris. Many thanks, as always. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with John Muller. Our guest now is doing some of the most interesting work writing about soccer and analytics of anyone I can think of these days. John Muller recently became a senior writer for The Athletic UK, but he actually lives in Austin, Texas, not the UK. You can find him on Twitter at John Space Muller. John, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here with a fellow, you know, newsletter writer. Yeah, exactly. And I want to talk about all that stuff, including uh, the newsletter that you had before you went to the Athletic, and and sort of your story in this business. But the very first thing I want to talk to you about is the absolutely insanely good 
kind of wild but really interesting <laughs> five kingdoms of football that you just did for the athletic which combines a lot of different things in a way that is truly original i mean you've got maps you've got analytics there's just so much there and instead of having me explain it i'm wondering how do you explain what this this is this story and how did you come up with the idea yeah i'm still not sure uh my very english editor calls it utterly mad which i think is about <laughs> the best description of, of the whole thing so what it is is uh, basically i used data stats uh to kind of sort every team in the top five leagues by play style uh, which is a project that i had sort of done before on my old newsletter and so i wanted to do it differently and the way that it sorts all these teams is it basically puts them on this kind of map where north, south, east, and west don't really mean anything. And I wanted to give it meaning and make it kind of interpretable. So I turned it into a, like a fantasy map. You know, the thing you see on like page one of every fantasy novel ever, like Lord of the Rings, all that stuff. And uh, then, you know, since I had a fantasy map, I had to tell a, a fantasy story to explain <laughs> what was going on here. And it, it kind of, you know, devolved from there. I mean, folks, you got to see it uh, to, to understand what we're talking about here, but there's just so much going on, and it was a lot of fun. And as someone myself who grew up reading The Lord of the Rings and loving maps like this, and, and we even have, I don't know if you know, the it's a famous New Yorker cover at the entrance to our apartment here in New York that is a map of New York City with like as a fantasy map it's 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 got different stands basically of like different neighborhoods of new york so it's not exactly the same thing but it's nice. sort of the same thing yeah 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 and and so it's a thing you can geek out over i think uh which i did and a bunch of other people did like what's the response been it's it's been uh it's been actually way more positive than I expected, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, starting with my editor, I can't believe they ran the thing. But uh, but a lot of people have really loved it. A lot of people have also just been like, what the hell is this? And I, I get it. Like, it's kind of confusing if you're looking for normal soccer writing. Uh, but yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people have been super into it. And that's been nice. That's great. And one thing that you're doing, which I think is cool, is that, you know, there was real writing with this. And, you know, the analytics side and the writing side aren't always the same worlds. And I'm wondering how do you, doing what you do, go about trying to bridge both worlds and, and appeal to the, the data obsessives out there, but also appeal to people who like good writing? Yeah, that's a real challenge because, you know, the main thing when you're writing about data is you have to be clear and you have to like really explain what's, what's going on. And it's hard to be precise and like kind of creative and interesting to read at the same time. And that's something that I'm always trying to, you know, find interesting ways to approach. But the main thing that I find is that like, I just want to have fun, right? Because stats can be kind of boring and nobody wants to read like a dissertation. And so as long as like the idea of the story is fun, it tends to like kind of flow from there. Okay. Interesting. Um, I, I want to get into your story because I became aware of you, I guess, through your newsletter that you had before you went to The Athletic. But did you have sort of a previous work life of, of something else that you did before you got into soccer? Yeah, so about a uh, little over a year ago, year and a half ago now, uh, I was a lawyer in New York City when the pandemic hit. And uh, I, I 
spent you know the first few months of the pandemic kind of staring at litigation documents on a laptop and was just super depressed and uh, left that life. I, I just I just decided I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, and I had been kind of writing about soccer for fun for a while, so I launched a newsletter, talked to my friend Ryan O'Hanlon who had a successful newsletter, and you know discussed kind of what this whole thing was about and decided it was a fun thing to try. And here I am a year later, fully employed. I didn't realize this was that recent to develop, but holy cow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and so where did your sort of your soccer interest start? So I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm like any other American. I played soccer as a kid from like four to 12 and then kind of forgot that the sport existed when like basketball and football and baseball took over my life. And uh, in my 20s, I lived in Brazil and Mexico and, you know, there was the only sport. So I got, I got kind of obsessed with it. And I started as a Barcelona fan. And I, you know, watched and rewatched every game that, you know, Messi and Xavi and all those guys ever played. And then about three, four years ago, when I was living in New York, my brother got me into MLS. And through MLS, I got into a group called American Soccer Analysis that does really great analytics work. And those guys kind of taught me about soccer data and stats and got me curious about that side of the game. And here I am doing it for a living. Okay. And so do you need like a statistics math background to do this stuff or, or do you God, do I you hope have not because they're going to fire me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have a bunch of liberal arts degrees. I, I don't have a statistics background. Um, I learn a lot from my PhD friends, including Mark Carey, who works with me at The Athletic, is a, a psychology PhD who came to this. And that's kind of a more normal way, I think, to get into stats because those guys have the the stats class background and the, you know, the programming background. And I just sort of learned all this stuff fresh. Okay. That's just absolutely fascinating. And what did he share with you in terms of things that work, things that maybe don't work when it comes to, to starting a newsletter? Yeah. So at the time that I talked to Ryan about this, this must've been like June of 2020. And he was like the only soccer newsletter that I knew at the time. And now there's, you know, God knows how many, um, Substack has really blown up. But back then it was like, you know, he put me in touch with the VP of Substack to chat about what newsletters were. Um, and so I was basically just trying to find out, you know, can this be a way to make a living? You know, can you like do this in freelancing and kind of make it as a writer? And, and he was doing that. He was also writing a book at the time, of course. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was interested in the economics of it. I was interested in, you know, do I want to like drop into my reader's inbox every day, which... I probably could have done, but it would have been a very different project than what I wound up doing, which was more like kind of deep dives into analytics and tactics. You got some pretty well-known subscribers after a while, and I, I, I know Bob Bradley was one of them. Like, what kind of a relationship did you end up developing with Bob? Yeah, so Bob was actually one of my first paid subscribers, and the way that I found that out was that his wife accidentally subscribed a second time, and he, <laughs> he had to text me to be like, hey, uh, can you cancel that one? By the way, it's Bob Bradley. I was like, whoa, 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 it's Bob Bradley. All right, cool. Um, you know, the former manager of the United States national team is reading my work. And, you know, there were probably like a few dozen people paid subscribers back then. Uh, and so we, you know, we've chatted since then, uh, kind of become friendly. He wound up doing a long interview that I thought was one of the most interesting newsletters that I did, where he really opened up about kind of how he thinks about soccer, how he watches it, really detailed tactics. And I, I loved that. And, and we still talk about that kind of stuff now and then. It's really interesting. My experience with Bob, and I've talked about it before, goes back to the early 90s. But I noticed, especially with him when he was coaching Egypt, that he had his finger on the pulse of what was happening information-wise in Egypt at a really 
news filled time back in 2012 that time frame and and did some pretty incredible things i wrote a whole magazine story about it but from the information perspective he I, i really appreciated how he sought out good info um at a time when there was a lot of info often conflicting and had a good eye for even (sighs) sources of information that not everyone was following you know Mm -hmm. and and i think that's a a skill that everyone kind of should have but like how did what was your experience with your newsletter did you know and, and then how did things transition into you joining the athletic yeah, so I launched a newsletter on a platform called Ghost. I wasn't even doing the Substack thing like everybody else, going really indie with it. And, uh, you know, at, at the time, there was no template. I was I was really just making things up as I went. Uh, you know, I, I really tried kind of anything and everything that felt like it might be interesting, which was a lot of fun. I think it was probably confusing for my readers because they never knew what they were going to get from one <laughs> week to the next. And it never really settled into like a rhythm of like, okay, yeah, we're going to do kind of a tactics piece on Tuesday and an analytics piece on Friday or anything like that. It was always just, you know, kind of here's a crazy project idea I had and let's see how, what the reaction is. And more often than not, the, the reaction was actually really good. I think that people were hungry for kind of new and different types of soccer writing and and things that didn't feel like what they could get from their standard sites. And then the interest from The Athletic, how did that come about? So, you know, at at the time that I was doing this, there wasn't a whole lot of people doing stuff like what I was doing on my newsletter, but some of the closest stuff in the mainstream was coming from Tom Warville and later Mark Carey at The Athletic UK. And uh, Tom Warville did this for about a year and a half, something like that, and uh, then got hired by RB Leipzig to go be their data analyst. Uh, and so when Tom you know, had like a month to, to get to Leipzig and they had to find somebody to replace him, they called me because I guess I was you know, kind of close to what, what he was doing. And uh, yeah, it, it really was a pretty quick process. We tried to figure out how I could get to London. Didn't work out, but Austin's lovely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure to work with those guys. Congrats on that. I know you've just gotten there, but you've already produced some terrific work for them. Thank you. How does that work? It's a- Athletic UK is different from the soccer coverage of the Athletic in the US. It's actually a much bigger staff personnel-wise, but are you the only US-based person on that staff? I'm pretty sure that I'm the only US-based writer on the Athletic UK side. Okay. Uh, which which is interesting because yeah I you know also watch a ton of MLS and USMNT and you know they've got a whole other vertical for that uh, so I talk to those guys too now and then and it's you know the athletic is a huge operation they're they're covering you know whole other sports that I have no visibility on what those guys are doing but the UK side is such a machine for covering the entire soccer world that. You know, I'm, I'm just a drop in the ocean over there. Is there any chance that on the U.S. soccer side, we might be able to steal you occasionally to do some stuff on MLS or the U.S. national Yeah, I, I feel like when there are stories that cross the ocean, uh, those sides are pretty good about working together. And I've, you know, I've been on Alexander Abnos's podcast to talk about a Ralph Rangnick thing. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it goes back and forth now and then. So I'm curious because you had a tweet not too long ago that I thought was interesting. And it was sort of getting into post-game press conferences. And from your perspective, I thought you made some interesting points about what you wish more media who were attending post-game press conferences or at least had access to, if if a a lot of them were still being done by Zoom, what you would prefer to see the focus be on more. 
and it, it it stood out to me. What what sort of would you prefer to see? Man, you you remember my own tweets better than I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that tweet was about. I forget which uh, you know quote kind of sparked it. But maybe it was Jurgen Klopp giving a really detailed answer about his team's tactics. And every once in a while, you'll get that from a manager. And it's usually when they feel like the reporter has a genuine curiosity about how the team really plays. And it's not just, you know, what did it feel like to win today? It's how did you win today? And what were you specifically doing? What were you telling your players? What were you seeing out there on the pitch that was or wasn't what you wanted? And so, you know, in addition to being an analytics nerd, I'm also a tactics nerd. And I love listening to managers explain, you know, how they really think about the game. Uh, there was Bruno Lage after Wolves beat United last weekend, also gave a kind of really fascinating answer about how he was targeting the space in front of or behind United's fullbacks, depending on how they were positioned. And it happened because the reporter asked him not just, you know, what did it feel like to win, but what was your game plan and how did you come in here to Old Trafford and really dominate Manchester United? I love that stuff. I agree with you. And I, I do think certain managers are better suited for that than others like definitely i love bruce arena but like if you ask <laughs> bruce a question like that like my guess is the response is going to be guys made plays <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can get a straight answer from Bruce about anything, but that's a really good impression. <laughs> but that said, I mean, I do think that there are a lot, and probably the majority, actually, of managers like to talk about that stuff. Some are sort of an extreme end of that. I think Greg Berhalter in particular is mm -hmm. a guy who likes to talk in detail. I really love Greg's podcast that he does with Bobby Warshaw, uh, where he kind of goes into depth about each USMNT game and the prep for each camp. And it's because Bobby asks thoughtful questions and because Greg trusts that, you know, he really cares about this stuff and knows something about, about the kind of answers that he's going to get. And I wish that we had more reporters asking that kind of question. It, it is interesting because Burhalter had said, you guys listen to that stuff? You know, like his <laughs> podcast. Yeah, he and, has no idea that there are, you know, hundreds of us geeking out over it. And it's actually one of the better, I mean, because look, there's a long history over the decades of coaches shows, right? That like, actually for the most part like with college football coaches are brutally bad and terrible yeah, yeah, yeah. but um but this is a type of coaches show that i would recommend the greg burhalter podcast with bobby warshaw to people totally. to listen to because you do get a window into um into burhalter's thinking and i just appreciate the fact that he's willing to go into details that i'm trying to think of his predecessors as u.s coach i i would say that both Arena and Klinsman never really liked doing that. That is definitely true. I, I also think that like USMNT fans spend so much time being bored that they're really receptive to you know anything that they can really dig into and, and geek out over. Uh, you know, you've got a long time between camps, and there are only so many you know sixteen-year-olds that you can hype as the next Messi. So. <laughs> You need something fun now and then. No, I think that's true. But here's another point I would make. I don't know if 2010 Bob Bradley as U.S. coach would have been as open as 2021 Bob Bradley to go into details like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I mean, you know, the pressures of the job, I think, probably shut a lot of managers down more than they might be in their in their personal lives. Uh, and, I, and I really respect that about Greg Berhalter, that even when the heat is on, you know, he's always willing to give you a patient, thoughtful answer about really, you know, really honestly what he's thinking about his team right then. There's some other folks that you're working with at The Athletic UK. Uh, Michael Cox has always been one of my favorite tactics writers. 
how does that work? And, and when you join a place like that and you start working with him, and obviously there's some overlap of what you do, not complete, but yeah. how do you develop that kind of a, a, a relationship with someone in, you know, in your house? So I was really lucky uh, because the week before I started at The Athletic, I was in Barcelona. The club was doing a sort of analytics conference. Uh, and so I just topped over to London and started my first week of the job there. So I got to meet Cox and a lot of the other guys kind of during my first few days on the job. And I respect Michael Cox for traveling across London just to get a beer with me. Uh, super, I wouldn't say friendly guy, but very smart and, and thoughtful and, and really interesting person to, to chat with. And he was, you know, curious about my my managers don't matter take, which he clearly hated, but still wanted to know about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's really fun to work with these brilliant people. It is interesting because um, we have Landon Donovan who comes on for our post game uh, reaction shows that we do after every U.S. World Cup qualifier, and I was using the phrase zonal marking which I think is a very legitimate phrase, but like sure. actually Landon has a total issue with it. And I think it's it comes down to the fact that the actual word marking to him means man to man. And so like, but he picked this hill to die on and and it's like, there's no <laughs> such thing as zonal marking. And I was like, well- You're either Michael marking or you're zonally defending or something. <laughs> I don't know about it. I told him Michael Cox is going to have to totally change his brand name. Right. According to you, Landon Donovan. Um, I, I would love I, to see them go at it over that. <laughs> so what's your day-to-day -day like? So like how, how many games do you watch a week? And how do you sort of come up with new ideas? Because that's not easy. Yeah, I mean... Definitely when I was writing the newsletter, I was watching more soccer than I can now just because my job, you know, kind of responsibilities are stretched in more directions. I still watch a ton. You know, I watch almost every Premier League game over the weekend and then some Spanish games if I can, one or two from Europe. You know, I, I really watch a lot. I just don't get to, like, drop them in a video editor and break them down the way that I used to, which I miss. Uh, but, you know, in addition to that, I'm also writing. I'm also doing a ton of data work and uh, yeah, so my day-to-day my -day is very different depending on which of those things I'm doing at, at any given moment. And by the time I wake up every morning, even if I'm on Slack at 6 a.m. my time, they're already well into the workday over there, so I got to get caught up and you know work over their night to give them whatever's useful. And I let you drop this in there, and a lot of our listeners, you know, some may follow your work very closely, some may not. Managers don't matter. You want to explain that one? <laughs> so I dropped this take like maybe my second week at The Athletic. Uh, it's, it's one of my most cherished ones just because it makes people so mad. Uh, and I think that it's actually really productive that people get mad about this because manager discourse is, to me, it's unhinged. Like we, we treat these guys like they're some kind of deity who like has a you know, PlayStation controller and is <laughs> telling every player every movement on the field. And like that doesn't actually happen. That's not how it works. And if you listen to any manager talk about their job, they'll tell you that's not how it works. That's not what I do. It's more like a teacher, right? Like you spend months and months with these guys just kind of trying to help them think about the game differently. And then when they get out, the, out there on the pitch, they may or may not remember any of it. They may or may not execute any of the stuff that you've been talking about. And if you listen to managers, they're often very frustrated that they've spent the last month working on something and then the players completely forgot about it when they got out there. Um, and so the upshot is that like, there's a lot of very careful academic research on this, uh, trying to kind of quantify the effect of a manager on a team. 
at least in the short to kind of medium term, they found that it's it's actually really hard to show that most managers matter much at all. And, you know, maybe over the long term, you give a guy like Pep Guardiola five years at Man City and he like, you know, really teaches these guys to think about the game differently. But this idea that like you're going to drop Ralph Rangnick in and Manchester United is going to be a totally different team than they were under Ole a month ago is crazy. And, you know, it, it really doesn't work like that most of the time. We're kind of seeing that right now under Ralph Rangnick. Uh, not not a huge sample size yet, but um, it, it is interesting. I, what When you put that argument out there, sort of what percentage of people go, yeah, I, I agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, people were furious. And it's partly because the kind of evidence that we use to back up our thoughts about managers is like not very rational. It's it's hugely anecdotal. And it's like, we'll remember the one time that a guy like really made a difference. And we'll be like, you know, every new manager hire is supposed to make that kind of difference. And no, it happens like, you know, one out of every 20 or 50 times. Like, I do think that Thomas Tuchel made a big difference at Chelsea last season. I also think that Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea right now is not significantly better than Frank Lampard's Chelsea was at this time a year ago. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's mostly about how good your players are. That's what it comes down to. And the first time that I published this take, it was don't blame the manager. It's the sporting director's fault, because what really matters is, you know, how much money do you have? And are you smart about spending it? Are you getting guys who are good at their job and make sense as a team? And I think that United has a lot of money, but hasn't done a great job on that recruiting side. And that's what we're seeing on the field. What are uh, any other favorite examples of yours of takes data back takes that make people angry <laughs> data back takes that make people angry you know i i honestly don't most of the time try to make people angry i'm okay with making people angry if i think that there's like something in the discourse that's just so wacky that the only way to kind of get cut through the noise is is to piss people off uh but i i don't know i i really try to kind of have fun more than to kind of engage in day-to-day -day warfare on Twitter because life's too short. And one thing I've noticed over the years, there's so many, well, there's not so many, there's there's several really good tactics and in, in data analysts, people out there in the soccer world now, certainly more than there used to be, which is, which is great. And yeah. I, I do think that, especially people in Europe with soccer seem to have accepted data much more in the last few years is what it seems like um but a lot of it is is understandably analysis and you know comes from watching games and going through the data not a lot of it even now involves interviewing mm -hmm. you know these data analysts interviewing um mm -hmm. the the managers or the sporting directors or who knows even the players um would you like to change that in any way? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something that I've always tried to do. Um, the challenge, I mean, I think there are a few challenges. One is, you know, do you have the audience for it? And I think that, like you said, England in particular has, has really kind of come around to that in the last few years. And I talk to people in country after country where they're like, you know, it's me and five other dudes who are interested in this stuff. But, you know, we feel like things are moving in our direction and we're trying to build an analytics culture here. And I think that England is over that hump. Um, but even once you have the audience for it, access is so crazy in England. You know, it's so hard to get a manager to talk to you about things or even just like an assistant coach, let alone a sporting director. So, you know, you, you have to have clubs feel like it's in their interest to, to open up and to discuss these things. And I think that especially with analytics, 
there's this mindset that I'm not necessarily as sure is correct, but there's a mindset that it's like, you know, real trade secrets that, that if we're investing in, you know, this super secret sciencey stuff, we shouldn't tell anybody what we're doing. I do respect that Liverpool has been like relatively open about what they've been doing. And they've been kind of a really prominent example of a club that hires a lot of smart people to work on analytics and sees results and they're recruiting from it. Uh, I also really respect that Barcelona has published some like high quality research papers. But other than those two clubs, you know, it's really a black box at most clubs, what they're doing analytics wise, which is unfortunate. For a bunch of years, I've gone to the Sloan conference up in Boston, uh, which yeah. is a sports analytics conference. I always have a lot of good guests. It's good to connect with people there. And in the soccer space, probably no different than the other sports, but I don't spend time with them. Like in the soccer space, what people have usually said to me is there's a, there's a lot of data out there right now. Every club has data people, and yet not that many clubs actually have a manager who wants to listen to the data people that closely. Yeah, and there's certainly yeah. exceptions. Has that changed at all in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all kind of part and parcel of the same cultural shift, right? I, I mm -hmm. think that as people see a club like Liverpool, you know, get a real competitive edge from this, that not only makes, you know, sporting directors want to hire analytics teams, it also makes managers think, you know, maybe there's there's something in this for me if Jurgen Klopp is listening to these guys. Uh, but But it is a real challenge, I think, for people who see the game in very different ways, which is, you know, like an old school coach and some young, you know, data PhD guy to, to communicate with each other and to find common ground. And a lot of that comes from, you know, managers being open-minded and a lot of it comes from analytics guys really asking questions that are interesting to the coaches and showing them something that really makes sense on the field and not just a spreadsheet, right? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and it, it, kind of in the years to come, what what sort of stuff are you interested in doing? You know, I, I have no idea. I, if you had asked me two years ago where I would be, I definitely would not have said uh, writing for, you know, the best outlet in, in London about soccer analytics. I love it. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of enjoying what I'm doing, seeing how far I can push the boundaries by writing fantasy novels about soccer stats. And, you know, we'll see what happens. John Muller is a senior writer for The Athletic UK. He is doing absolutely great stuff, which you should check out. You can find him on Twitter at John Space Muller. Spell out the space there. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank John Muller as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. There's a new story on Katarina Macario that I think you'll enjoy. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>